It's episode 40 of the Keto for Women show. You're listening to the Keto for Women show, and I'm your host and nutritionist, Sean Miner. This show is designed to empower women to find their own expression of the keto diet to maximize their health and happiness. Now let's get started with today's episode. Hey there, friends. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me here on Keto for Women today. Always happy to have you here with me chatting about all kinds of things related to women and keto. Today is no different, of course, and a very special topic with a very special guest. And I have to tell you that prior to recording this interview, I was like, okay, cool. A lot of people are asking questions about this. This is something that's a hot topic for me, at least in the Keto for Women community, as far as people reaching out and wanting more information. But it wasn't all that interesting to me personally, and you'll find out why. But once the interview started going and we really got into the research and the data and just everything that this guest of mine knows about this topic, I was fascinated. It is such a great episode, so much amazing information, whether you are in this stage of life or not, really great info to learn about low carb for pregnancy, gestational diabetes, the whole topic of keto and pregnancy. This stuff is really awesome to know because we're eventually all going to know somebody who's pregnant. And a lot of women who are pregnant do get diagnosed with gestational diabetes. So to have this information and to be able to kind of share your knowledge with these women that you may know is going to end up being really important for all of us at some point in our lives. So we're going to get into this episode really shortly because there's a ton of great information and I want to get right into it. The only thing I have to share outside of this today is just a reminder that the Good Gut Project, this six-week class that I have developed for women to learn more about their gut health. So it is doing so with functional lab testing on both your gut health and also doing an optional food sensitivity test. That course, the enrollment for the May class is happening right now, and it is going to close in a matter of days if you're listening to this when the show airs in order to get the test kit sent out, get everything shipped to the lab, give us enough time to start. So if you want to really dive into your health right now, find out what's going on in your gut, what may be causing some of these random health issues you're dealing with, enroll for the Good Gut Project and I'd be happy to help you. And so would the small group of women you're going to be with. So really fun, really enjoying that project and helping women feel better as quickly as they can with their gut. And that's one of the best things about finding out what's actually going on in your gut is you can go from years of trying all the things to heal your gut. And then once you actually know, the healing process is like eight weeks. It's so short once you actually have that data. So I love being able to do that for women. All right, let's get on to today's interview. I am chatting with Lily Nichols, who is a real food dietitian and specializes in prenatal nutrition and gestational diabetes. She is the best-selling author of Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and is now on her second book, Real Food for Pregnancy. Let's hear from Lily. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for coming on Keto for Women today. 
Hey, Sean, thank you for having me. Very excited for this chat because as I was talking to you before we started recording, I get so many questions on a pretty regular basis about using a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet for when you're trying to get pregnant. So in order to kind of gain fertility, but then also for while you're pregnant, for breastfeeding, for everything in that time of a woman's life. So this is a really good opportunity for us to just kind of chat about that and clear the air for all these moms-to-be and moms currently, all those ladies out there. Yes, definitely. I'm so glad to be here. I get asked this question a lot too. So Yes, it's a big one out there. So let's chat about it. First of all, let's introduce you. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you came from, what you do, all that good stuff. Sure. So I am a registered dietitian and diabetes educator by trade. So I have actually focused on prenatal nutrition for most of my career as a dietitian. And I first really got into it while working with women with gestational diabetes. So that's the type of diabetes that first is either recognized or develops during pregnancy, and it's characterized by high blood sugar. Once your blood sugar gets beyond a certain threshold, you can be put into that category, which is actually, it's definitely a diagnosis that's on a spectrum. There's a whole range of like severity of blood sugar issues in pregnancy. But of course, being in that realm, you end up needing to focus a lot on bringing blood sugar down. And that, of course, brings the focus onto food because diet is the major way that you control it. And the number one nutrient that affects your blood sugar is carbohydrates. So by default, I have a lot of background in carbohydrates and pregnancy. Most people know me from my work, from my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, where I actually go against the conventional diet advice and suggest a diet that's lower in carbohydrates and provide the evidence that says that's safe because there's a lot of misconceptions around carbohydrates and pregnancy and ketones and all the stuff that we want to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I have a lot to say on the topic. And I've just released my second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, which I have a similar stance nutrition-wise, but I cover many, many more topics because this is really a whole different animal of a book really for most women would probably be picking this up early in their pregnancy versus gestational diabetes. You're usually getting diagnosed in the third trimester. So the first book is very much blood sugar focused Mm -hmm. and the second book kind of covers that and everything else. So I love it so much. First question, just not even on this topic, but I'm very curious. So you are a dietitian. How did you make that transition or how did it happen that you kind of became into the real food world? Because I think we know in most cases, there's a lot of kind of learning the food pyramid and and that going towards the food pyramid in that kind of program. Oh, yeah. So, but then you obviously had to go against kind of what you learned to get where you are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good question. I was one of those sort of oddballs that was really into nutrition before I started my conventional training. I was raised in a very health conscious household and I was working under a nutritionist before I went to college. And it was there that I was introduced to the work of Dr. Weston Price. Mm -hmm. So very traditional style of eating, like how ancestral diets, this was like before paleo got really popular. So Weston Price was kind of it was before then. I mean, this is, he was a dentist who did research on nutrition back in like the early 1900s. Yeah. And it was, it was a little weird back then before paleo, he was more yeah. of kind of had this outlandish style diet. Exactly. So at the time I was actually 
eating vegetarian. I was eating low fat, eating soy, lots of whole grains, trying to limit saturated fat and meat. And this nutritionist I was working with was like, hey, you might want to check this out. Soy might not be the best idea. You might actually want to incorporate more animal foods. Just think about it. And so I read his book like from the 1920s or 1930s and I read Nourishing Traditions and that really colored the lens through which I viewed all nutrition information that I was giving Mm -hmm. in college. So I was very eyes wide open and kind of a skeptic while I was in my training and really used my access to the scientific literature. I mean, as a student, you have access to all the medical journals. It's just amazing. So I really got obsessed with research at that time. And so I was always kind of questioning what I learned because it didn't align with what I had personally found to make me feel better because my health really turned around when I started incorporating more fat and more animal foods. And a lot of what I found in the research didn't align with what was published in my textbooks. So once I was done with my clinical training, done with, you know, my, you have to do a hospital based internship, then I went my own path because I couldn't, I didn't feel like it was the ethical choice for me to stay working in conventional healthcare in that setting, being forced to provide low fat, high carb dietary advice that I know wasn't, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't right. right. Yeah. And then, you know, I, after that, I did end up back in conventional healthcare a little bit with all my work with gestational diabetes and in public policy. And, you know, I was still in the field, but I was always in the field in a very specific way and was very determined to not be forced to put out inaccurate advice. (laughs) So I've kind of been rogue from the beginning, I guess you could say, because it was almost like I knew too much, but it was good. I was introduced to all of these ideas from the beginning and then was able to use my education and access to research to kind of prove or disprove. Mm -hmm. And a lot of self-experimentation and clinical work kind of have led me to where I am today. Oh, I love it. So great. It's just a really important transition. I think a lot of dietitians make, and I'm always curious as to how it happens. So just thought I would ask, okay, let's get into talking about pregnancy. I know this probably isn't kind of going along the path, as you said, in gestational diabetes, you're finding out about this in the third trimester. So we'll skip to the third trimester real quick, because I want to learn more about that since we brought it up a few times now. Tell us a little bit about what that means, gestational diabetes, and why someone would get diagnosed with that? Yeah. So as I touched upon earlier, gestational diabetes is really just high blood sugar or blood sugar levels beyond a certain threshold that put you in this category. (laughs) So it's blood sugar issues that can develop during pregnancy. It could be pre-existing blood sugar issues that a mom had before pregnancy that she didn't know about that then get worse over the course of pregnancy because there's a lot of physiological adaptations to pregnancy that affect your blood sugar levels. If your body adapts the way it is intended to to pregnancy, your blood sugar levels actually should be lower than they are pre-pregnancy. And your body does this by producing a lot more insulin during pregnancy. If you sometimes by the third trimester, people can be producing like triple the amount of insulin. And you see this, you know, I've worked with women with type one diabetes. So women who require insulin shots to keep their blood sugar under control and you see insulin needs go up dramatically. It's really crazy. At the same time, your body's response to insulin is a lot different. Starting in the second and third trimester, something called insulin resistance comes up where your body becomes less responsive to the insulin in your system. And for people who have 
pre-existing insulin resistance already coming into pregnancy and or if their pancreas does not adapt by producing more insulin to overcome this insulin resistance, you can end up with high blood sugar. And so this can happen for a variety of reasons. Like I said, it could be something pre-existing. So there could be a family history of diabetes. There could be some blood sugar imbalance going on like PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which often has insulin resistance as a hallmark. A woman starts her pregnancy at a slightly higher weight. That's usually, but not always associated with insulin resistance. So that's like another risk factor. Again, sometimes the pancreas just doesn't adapt. And that's like, again, some of these things are out of your control. And then some of them, there's a bit of control that we have over them, sometimes by the way we eat or sometimes by certain things in our, in our preconception care. It's a complicated diagnosis though, because we don't always have perfect answers, like up to 50% of women don't have any of the classic risk factors for gestational diabetes and seem to get it. So it's really tricky. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like it's something that if you are seemingly healthy and then all of a sudden this becomes a diagnosis in your pregnancy, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have terrible blood sugar issues for the rest of your life or anything like that, right? Not necessarily. Gestational diabetes is actually the number one most reliable predictor of a woman getting type 2 diabetes later in life. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, like big time. So up to 70% of women who have gestational diabetes will end up with type 2 diabetes within 5 to 10 years after having their baby. Oh, that's huge. It is actually really huge. That said, gestational diabetes is, like I mentioned, it's on a huge spectrum. So there are some women who have very minorly elevated blood sugar that is really easily managed with diet or exercise or whatever. So in other words, it could just be a sign that her diet was way too high in carbs and she just drops the carbs slightly, all's good to go, no issues, she's fine. Then there's another woman who maybe it's not only her food that's affecting her blood sugar, she can drop carbs as much as she wants and her blood sugar doesn't come down enough and you start needing medication, maybe you need higher doses of medication, like as you get up the severity, like the more difficult it is for you to bring your blood sugar down and the more medical management that's required, particularly if you've already lowered your carbohydrates in your diet, that tends to be just in my clinical experience and also what we see in the research too, that tends to be a bigger predictor of having a blood sugar issue later in life. So again, my like convoluted answer is like, It is and it isn't. (laughs) It's kind of like the warning light coming on in your car, like, hey, check the engine, make sure everything's okay. It could be a really minor thing, or it it could be like, whoa, there's a serious blood sugar issue here that you want to keep an eye on for the rest of your life. Like, you want to be proactive about this for the rest of your life. But I'm always telling women, you know, that can be really a silver lining because you are getting this early warning sign. Your body still is producing insulin. You know, we see all this great data on people eating lower carb, able to completely people, I'm talking like type two diabetes, like people can go off their blood sugar medications sometimes. Like you can restore decent function of your pancreas and restore insulin sensitivity with nutrition and and lifestyle changes a lot of times. So it's not always like fate or destiny that like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get type two diabetes no matter what I do. Like you do have somewhat of a say. <laughs> right. And and it's just sort of that reminder like, hey, step up. Let's keep doing what you're doing during pregnancy, after pregnancy, and keep you really well. Cause I also have women like I've had people I've seen through multiple pregnancies 
sometimes they've had gestational diabetes one pregnancy and you expect it to like get worse and worse next pregnancy. I've had women who required insulin their first or second pregnancy and then don't require it for the next one because they've changed their lifestyle. So you never know. Right. Think about it. Like life is in your favor. Your blood sugar control is more within your control than you think. Go with that, be proactive, and then, you know, just reassess wherever you're at. Let's talk about the test that you have to do for gestational diabetes. I've never done it. I don't have kids, but I've heard about it. And you know, you have to drink like basically straight sugar, right? And causes some people some upset. And it's some sort of fake type sugar or something not ideal for our health. Let's chat about that. What do you think about that test? Oh man. So we could talk for probably an hour and a half on this topic alone. So I'll try to keep it under wraps. (laughs) The test you're talking about is called the glucose tolerance test or the glucola. And it is the most widely used and really the most researched method for diagnosing gestational diabetes. It is gross depending on where you are drinking. Well, it's always drinking a certain amount of glucose or sugar, and then they test your blood sugar sometimes before, hopefully, (laughs) and then after the test at certain intervals. And depending on where you're at, it can use different amounts of glucose. So the amount of glucose they can give you can be anywhere from 50 grams to 100 grams. And then they compare those to the average of what other pregnant women get. You know, on one hand, the test is sort of one and done situation. You like go into the office, you get the test done. If all is clear, you can just go on your merry way and not worry about it. If something's high, then you know to monitor your blood sugar. Great. Like it's a way of kind of stratifying like risk. The issue is that it's, well, A, it's a lot of sugar. A lot of people don't want to do that for a variety of reasons. I absolutely relate to this. Mm -hmm. And I even have like a two-part series on my blog about my experience with the glucola. It is not always accurate. And there's always, as with any test, a risk of false positives and false negatives. False negatives, I sometimes see in women who have really, really high insulin production, which as I'm sure you know, isn't necessarily a good thing. That's usually like an adaptive response to your body, like constantly having high blood sugar. So sometimes I see those women pass the test and they probably shouldn't have. Mm. Then you also see false positives where you have women who are diagnosed with gestational diabetes, like their test is high, but then they go and start monitoring their blood sugar at home and their blood sugar is like totally great. Like what's going on with that? And sometimes you see that in women who eat a lower carb diet and essentially, and this has been known since like the 1960s, you can go back to research from the Journal of the American Medical Association from the mid-1900s and find all this research showing that glucose tolerance tests are not accurate in the context of somebody eating low carb because your pancreas has temporarily made this adaptation to not produce large boluses of insulin at a time because you don't need that because you're not eating large amounts of carbohydrates. So your body gets hit with a large amount of glucose and it hasn't yet adapted to that. So your blood sugar is temporarily higher you repeat a glucose tolerance test on those people after they've carb loaded for about a week. So at least 150 grams of carbs or more a day, and then they'll pass the glucose tolerance test, flying colors. You see the same thing in horses. I actually cover this in my new book. It's really interesting. You, you give horses a like grain supplement versus them just eating like alfalfa and grass. And the horses eating the alfalfa and grass fail a glucose tolerance test. Those are the ones eating their natural diet. 
and these are pregnant horses, by the way, Mm -hmm. the ones having their diet supplemented with a grain ration, they pass the glucose tolerance test. Oh, wow. Because their body's adapted to it at that time. So again, the test just isn't perfect. And there are probably goes beyond our conversation today because I know you want to get into more general carbohydrate stuff, but there are different testing options like early pregnancy ones. There's other ones you can consider for later pregnancy. I think definitely the most proactive choice if you're able to, and if you can get your care provider on board is to get a blood sugar meter and test your blood sugar at home. I mean, that gives you the most real life, I should say, information about what's going on in your body and which foods give you the best blood sugar numbers. It's like actionable real world information, but it's work. And a lot of people don't want to do it. Like I have to poke my finger four times a day. I have to carry around these supplies. I have to da, 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 da. And so there's always going to be a percentage of the population who probably is best served by just doing a glucose tolerance test. And there's always going to be a percentage best served by an alternative method. So I have like a huge section in the new book about all the different like pros and cons of all the different testing options for gestational diabetes and and how to choose the right one. I don't think the glucola is horrible. I think like there are better versions of the glucola. And I also don't think it's right for all women. That's like probably the sentence that sums up my feelings about it in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, which is understandable. It's understandable. Definitely. Okay. So let's say someone does get diagnosed with gestational diabetes or notices that they have blood sugar issues during their pregnancy if they're testing on their own, which I think would be a great idea for everyone. But what do you recommend as their dietitian? How does this transition then into perhaps a low carbohydrate diet? Yeah. So absolutely. If somebody has blood sugar issues, the the first step is to lower your carbohydrates in your diet. I mean, carbohydrates are of your macronutrients, like fats, carbs, and proteins. Carbs are the ones that raise your blood sugar the most. So that's the first place that you need to look. And a lot of people really, maybe your audience is, is already super aware of this, but the general public is not aware of all the places that carbohydrates come in their food. So they might just think like, oh, it's just grains, potatoes, pasta, bread sort of foods. And they don't also realize that like, oh, there's actually carbohydrates in milk and yogurt and anything that's sweetened and fruit and (laughs) beans and all these whole food sources. So, you know, a lot of my work really focuses on, at least with gestational diabetes, is getting people aware of all the different places that carbohydrates are coming in and understanding like how to combine those foods with the other foods that don't raise your blood sugar, like protein and fat foods, for example, don't raise your blood sugar. So like eggs and meat and cheese and those foods don't raise your blood sugar. So those foods you can have in, you know, greater quantities than you can your carbohydrate foods. And honestly, that's, that's like, but again, if I'm trying to keep it short and sweet, that's like the main thing that I focus on is just like where you get your carbohydrates, how you combine them with other foods. My recommendations are less carbohydrates than the conventional guidelines because the conventional guidelines push a minimum of 175 grams of carbs per day. I know everybody has different ideas about what constitutes high or low carb, but 175 pretty regularly fits in the higher Mm -hmm. carb category or at least moderately higher carb. And so I'm the first dietitian to publicly and loudly (laughs) disagree with those recommendations and provide the evidence to say that they don't make sense and we can do better with lower carb. And so, 
you know, you start looking at the research on this topic and there is a really great study it was back in 2009. So it's getting a little old now, but it was a, you know, randomized controlled trial with women with gestational diabetes and you focus their diet on more low glycemic carbohydrates versus higher glycemic ones. So like, you know, more non-starchy vegetables, beans, those types of foods versus like grains, <laughs> essentially grains and fruit juice and, and things that digest really rapidly. And they're able to drop insulin requirements dramatically by 50%. So your chances of requiring insulin are way, way lower if you focus your diet on low glycemic carbs versus high glycemic carbs, especially your processed carbohydrates, like things made with flour or like any sort of instant grains, instant rice, instant noodles, whatever. And it's physiologically nutritional common sense, but some of this information is rather groundbreaking when you see it in the context of like, what are the conventional recommendations Mm -hmm. for women with gestational diabetes, which are often like 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates per meal, which is just a recipe for high blood sugar. It just doesn't make sense. Seems very obvious to people like us. (laughs) It does. So where does that 175 gram, and is that just for any pregnant woman, that guideline? Yes, that's for any pregnant woman. Where does that come from? (laughs) Yeah, good question. (laughs) Yeah, this was something that I, it took me a long time to find this information, which is kind of crazy because, you know, I worked in public policy on gestational diabetes. So of all people, I should be able to like find this quickly. (laughs) When I started looking at it, you just see this recommendation it reappears in research studies and then they just sort of like incestuously cite one to the other, one to the other. Mm -hmm. I finally tracked it down to the Institute of Medicine document. It's like a over 1300 page document about macronutrient requirements and they have a section on pregnancy. Essentially, they go with the estimated average requirement for pregnant women, which is set at 100 grams of carbohydrates And then they add additional carbohydrates to account for the increased energy needs of pregnancy and then the amount of glucose that's estimated to be required by the fetal brain, which is about 33 grams a day. And then that brings you up to about 175 grams. I think they round up a little bit to make it a nice nice number. (laughs) But what's funny about that document is you you know, you start reading through it and you're like, okay, hundred grams is a starting point. Like what? You know, right. I remember at the time, like when I'm not pregnant, like I pretty regularly eat less than hundred grams of carbs a day. So like, what the heck? Anyways, you start reading in this document and then you find this sentence that says the lower limit of dietary carbohydrate compatible with life is apparently zero provided that adequate amounts of protein and fat are consumed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this document contradicts itself in multiple places. And clearly there are like millions of people eating low carb, less than a hundred grams a day. And they're, they still survive because your body has these magical built-in mechanisms to keep you alive because you can produce glucose from other sources, namely fat and protein and stay alive. So right. even if we assume, you know, 33 grams of glucose for the fetal brain and you know, a little extra, it's still, you could probably do a lot less than 175 grams. And I know I personally saw in practice that that works a lot better for better blood sugar control. And the second step on like, is it safe or not is looking at the whole, you know, ketone issue, which 
I also did. And I also think you want to talk about that. Yes, I can't wait. We're going to talk about that in a second. But what I first want to know, and this is, I think, why both of us get so many questions about this topic is, I think there's this kind of fear, which happens even just people being afraid to get into ketosis. It's this fear that if we don't have carbs, something bad's going to happen. And in the case of pregnancy, it's like, is my baby not going to be developed appropriately if I don't have carbs? Right. Right. So can we kind of dispel this myth that we need this certain amount of carbohydrates in order to make a baby? Yes. Well, as I already said, the recommendations are... Zero. (laughs) just this big, well, they're a big guesstimate when it comes to pregnancy. Right. I personally don't think it's zero. What I like to do is like reverse engineer a prenatal diet. So like look at the things we know are absolutely required and then go backwards and look at food and also look at it in the context of ancestral diets. And when you start to look at the micronutrients required for fetal development, you generally don't see those in high amounts in high carbohydrate foods Mm -hmm. for the most part. I mean, there's definitely exceptions and I'm like all for women. I think we, like we talked about before we started recording, you and I both agree that like carbohydrate needs are definitely an individual thing. Some women will need more than others. I mean, I've worked with women with type one diabetes who need very low carbohydrate intake to keep their blood sugar managed. And to think that suddenly because you're pregnant, you need to have a lot more carbohydrates, which then causes your blood sugar to go astronomically high, doesn't make sense because high blood sugar, at least beyond a certain threshold, is a known teratogen, which is something that causes birth defects. This is why like the rate of miscarriage and fetal loss is very high, at least in women who have pre-existing diabetes coming into pregnancy. And those early high blood sugar levels in the first trimester especially are are very risky to fetal development. So like, why would we necessarily need more of those? Like that part doesn't make sense with me. The big argument against going low carb in pregnancy is actually the issue of ketosis. So I should probably just go there now. Yeah, let's dive into it. So, you know, when I was working clinically with women with gestational diabetes, that was always the big warning. It's like, you can't go lower than 175 grams because a woman might go into ketosis. Like that was literally the only rationale for not going low carb. And I honestly haven't found any other reasons why low carb would potentially not be a good thing. So I'm pretty sure that's the only one. (laughs) (laughs) The issue with ketosis comes down to misinformation and misinterpreted research about ketosis So shocking. Now that ketogenic diets are getting popular, it's like a household term. Like this wasn't the case five years ago. Like I published Real Food for Gestational Diabetes in 2015. That was just when like keto was getting more popular. Certainly there was like a bit of a groundswell, but I think in the past year it's been, it was like one of the most Googled terms. So now everybody seems to know about ketosis. Like ketosis is the state that your body goes into when you burn fat. Great. The issue is that There is a type of ketosis that is harmful in the context of somebody with diabetes, and it's called diabetic ketoacidosis. And prior to very recently, and I think it's probably still the case in conventional medical care, even during my training as a certified diabetes educator, we were pretty much taught that ketosis is a dangerous state. It's like an emergency state that your body goes into when it's not getting enough, you know, quote unquote, essential carbohydrates. And it's like not a good thing. It wasn't viewed as a natural state that your body goes into. But in truth, there are different types of ketosis that your body can go into. So you can go to 
diabetic ketoacidosis, which is no bueno. This happens in people with usually with type 1 diabetes or insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. If you don't have enough insulin to allow your body to use glucose, so this is often in people who either misdose their insulin or skip insulin shots, your blood sugar can go very, very high. Your blood sugar is not able to be utilized by your cells because insulin is kind of part of your body bringing blood sugar out of your bloodstream and, and into your cells. And your body ends up burning fat as fuel instead. And you end up with very, very high blood sugar levels, very high ketone levels, like 30-fold higher than you would see in a normal state. And the acid-base balance in your body gets thrown off. So your pH is totally off. It is absolutely a metabolic emergency. You need emergency medical care. It is extremely serious in the context of pregnancy that's linked to fetal loss and stillbirth. Like Mm -hmm. that is bad. Okay. And whether it's a combination of all three of those issues or just the ketones alone, we don't know. It probably is all three. Cause as I mentioned, high blood sugar alone can cause birth defects and, and stillbirth. So that's one state that is extremely rare. And only in the case of people who already have diabetes, insulin requiring diabetes, then you have starvation ketosis, which is also not ideal because your body goes into a fat burning state because it's burning your fat stores because you're not taking in enough nutrients from any sources carbohydrates, fat, and protein. So you are starving and your body is breaking down your body fat. That's no good for pregnancy, obviously, because you're starved of essential nutrients. So no bueno. Mm -hmm. The final state is nutritional ketosis, which is a natural state where your body burns fat for fuel or goes in and out of a fat burning state throughout the day because you're not eating a large amount of carbohydrates or if you're doing sort of an intermittent fasting type of thing or even between dinner and breakfast sometimes, you can go in and out of ketosis. This actually is not a harmful state because your blood sugar is very well maintained. You're still eating food, so you're still getting your essential nutrients. You're just not getting a ton of carbs. And in pregnancy, physiologically, women are like three times more likely to go into ketosis in pregnancy. It just happens. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard for me to wrap my mind around was how could going into ketosis be harmful if that's a state that your body preferentially goes into frequently during pregnancy? Like what the heck is with that? And then just starting to think about like looking at fetal brain development, I came across research showing that 30% of the fetal brain energy needs are supplied by ketones. It's like 30%. What? You know, maybe there's a reason. There's also some research pointing to that the placenta may actually manufacture its own ketones. Ketones are also elevated during delivery at birth and throughout the whole first month of life. There's a fabulous study on this done in 2016, actually, that looked at normal, healthy, non-diabetic pregnant women and ketone levels were far higher than a non-pregnant state. And they the study only went to one month, but the babies were in ketosis that entire month. That's so cool. These were exclusively breastfed infants. So it was like, how could this state that your body wants to go into that babies are born into, like, how could this be harmful? And the truth is, a lot of times we're not monitoring ketone levels in anybody but diabetic women. So are we, are we just catching that in these women, but not normal women? Like, I know for me, I was in ketosis pretty frequently during pregnancy, especially towards the end, which physiologically, that's what happens. And it's like, I had to talk my care providers like off a ledge every time. And they're like, your ketones are high. I'm like, yeah, that's normal. Here, read my book. Like (laughs) this happens in pregnancy. It's not an emergency. Like the only way to turn that off is to like stuff your face with tons of carbs, which 
if you're following the conventional recommendations, I guess you are, but is that advantageous? Like, no, because your diet's lower in micronutrients when you eat more carbs and ketones play a role in brain development and everything. So, you know, I don't think that women need to necessarily like try really hard to be in ketosis. I just think it's something that often happens naturally, even in women who aren't severely restricting their carbohydrates. Like I wasn't eating like 20 or 30 grams of carbs a day. I was eating a lot more than that. And I was still regularly in and out of ketosis. It just happens. It's like just fact of life, not an emergency. Yeah. And it almost seems like if you're eating a real food diet and you're focused on, which is what I really liked that you said, if you're focused on getting the micronutrients that you need to develop a child in your body, then focus on that. Then you're going to be getting these really good, high quality, nutrient dense foods. And that's not going to include most carbohydrates. Like there's definitely some out there that are nutrient dense and great. And those will be probably what you include. But a lot of that is going to come from eating healthy fats and high quality, good source proteins. And that's where, you know, lots of good veggies and stuff. And that's where you're going to get the nutrition that you need for the baby. So you kind of almost naturally do that if that's what you are making a priority during that time. So I think that's a really important thing that you don't even need to really try. You're just going to do that. Yeah. Before we get any further with this episode, let me take just a second to tell you all about the Ample Ketogenic Meal Replacement Shakes. I'm so excited that this product is now out there. I can't wait for you all to try it. It is the first all-in-one keto meal replacement shake that gets the nutrition from quality, real ingredients, which is so, so, so hard to find in the ketogenic space. You all know how important real food ingredients are for me, and I want to pass that information on to you. And here we now have a really great opportunity to have a meal replacement shake, something that's super easy for us to grab when we're on the go, running errands, don't have time for breakfast, don't feel like cooking, whatever it may be, we now have a place to turn, and that is the Ample Ketogenic Meal Replacement Shakes. 70% of the calories in this shake come from premium healthy fats such as MCT oil powder, coconut oil powder, things we're already eating on a daily basis anyway. There are only six grams of net carbs in each meal and it comes along with 40 billion CFUs of probiotics, which is like 10 times what you would get by drinking a kombucha. So they're really taking care of our gut health. They're keeping that in check while we're on a ketogenic diet. They have the prebiotic fibers necessary too within this shake to feed the good bacteria in your gut. They've thought of so much. It has potassium and magnesium so that if you're going through the keto flu or you just want to work on your electrolyte balance, which is something we talk about a lot on keto for women, that's taken care of too. And the best part is it actually tastes amazing. I taste so many ketogenic products. Most of them I don't like, so I don't even tell you about them, but I love the flavor of these ample shakes. You're going to love it. I can't wait for y'all to try it. In order to do so, because they are a sponsor of the Keto for Women show, you lucky listeners get 15% off your order when you go to amplemeal.com and use the coupon code KETO, the number four, women15 at checkout. That's amplemeal.com and use the coupon code KETO, the number four, women15 
15 to get your 15% off your first order. I will make sure to have this information linked in the show notes so you can get easy access to your 15% off. To back up what you're saying on the micronutrient thing, they found that there was a really great study that looked at micronutrient intake in the context of dietary carbohydrates. And well, in the context of all macronutrients, they were trying to see like what macronutrient levels are like ideal and which ones provide the most micronutrients for pregnant women. And they found that women who eat more starch, even in the form of complex carbohydrates, so these are whole grains, for example, they have lower vitamin and mineral intake Mm. across the board. And this is likely because they displace more nutrient-dense foods. Like really, when you start to look at where do we get the iron and zinc and choline and vitamin B12 and vitamin B6 and DHA, like where do we find these micronutrients that are so important for baby's development and for avoidance of pregnancy complications? Like you often get those in like animal foods and non-starchy vegetables, (laughs) like your leafy greens, your salmon, your eggs, your grass-fed beef, oysters, nuts, seeds, you get them in those foods, which are naturally just happen to be lower in carbohydrates and less so in the higher carbohydrate foods. And again, doesn't necessarily mean that women need no carbohydrates, because of course, you're going to be getting carbohydrates from a lot of nutrient dense plant foods, even ones that aren't super high in carbs, like leafy greens, have some carbs, nuts, Mm -hmm. have some carbs, berries, have some carbs, you know, and there's always depending on your blood sugar, there's often room for things like sweet potatoes and winter squash and some fruit and stuff like that. But it really points to there not being a whole lot of room for grains, and especially the refined grains, you see a lot of right, hey, there's like, all the micronutrients have been removed minus what few have been fortified via like enriched flour. You know, you get three B vitamins and a poorly absorbed form of iron. <laughs> it doesn't really make up what for what has been removed. Right. This may be just kind of a question based on your own personal experience, or maybe you, you know a little bit more, but did you notice any differences in kind of being in this ketogenic state during pregnancy better or worse as far as your actual pregnancy went? Well, for me, I have had one pregnancy at the time of recording, so I can only speak to my pregnancy and then I can speak to what women I've worked with have, mm-hmm. have observed. Women who've eaten, you know, standard American diet versus real food that's naturally low in carbs by default. So in my case, I had a very easy, non-complicated pregnancy, like really very easy. (laughs) So (laughs) no complications. Blood pressure was great. Blood sugar was great. People should read my glucola story though, because that was funny. Birth went fine. Baby was, you know, came naturally eight pounds, two ounces. So like not too big, not too small, just right. And a thriving little little kiddo who's very bright. So that was my experience. It was a non-issue. I didn't gain beyond the weight gain guidelines and and lost the weight pretty quickly. So that part was great too. Among clients, I have actually include stories in Real Food for Gestational Diabetes between some of the chapters. I've had women who will come to me saying like, oh, I always gain 60 pounds every pregnancy. It's just it's what my body does. There's nothing I can do about it. And, you know, my blood pressure tends to go high at the end. Of course, they're usually seeing me for gestational diabetes. So like my blood sugar is also high. I needed insulin last time. I puff up, I swell up and retain a bunch of water. A lot of times all of those 
markers are better. So I've had women go from gaining 60 pounds in their pregnancy to gaining the expected 25. Mm -hmm. Like without, I mean, I can't say without trying because they have changed their diet. And that of course takes effort and energy, but it wasn't something they had to fight for because oftentimes when you're eating a diet that's providing you with enough fat and protein and not too many refined carbohydrates, naturally your appetite regulates. So you're not dealing with this crazy hunger pang thing all the time. So they gain within the weight gain guidelines easily. Blood sugar and blood pressure are intimately related. So if you get the blood sugar under control, the blood pressure often doesn't go high. The swelling that often accompanies pregnancy is A, related to salt. You need more salt during pregnancy, not less. But B is also related to carbohydrate intake and sugar intake. Mm -hmm. When you have higher insulin levels, your body retains more water. You get puffier (laughs) and your blood pressure also goes up with it. So again, with the help with the blood sugar, you automatically help the blood pressure automatically help the swelling. And then we know that a diet that's lower in carbohydrates is better for babies' development in terms of like their body composition. So you have babies that have a lower percent fat mass and are more likely to be born at a normal expected birth weight, not beyond that. So I've had women who have had like 11 pound babies in the past have like an eight and a half pound baby. Like, yes, maybe your body makes slightly bigger babies, but doesn't necessarily mean it's naturally an 11 or 12 pound baby. Like there is some relation to your food intake. Like baby size is related to food intake is related to maternal weight gain. And both of those things in the end tie back to food and tie back to carbohydrates, which automatically tie back to everything else you're eating. So what are you eating in place of those foods? What are the nutrients, micronutrients in those foods versus the ones in the high carb, high sugar foods that they were replacing? It usually ends up being sort of this all encompassing help in in baby's development and, and in your experience of pregnancy. Yeah, it definitely seems like it would be. And I have friends and clients that have said the same thing. So it's definitely a thing. Is there anything, you mentioned the salt, anything else, and you can talk about the salt too and why we do need more, but what other considerations do we need to make with our nutrition specifically for being pregnant? Yeah, so the salt thing, definitely a very important one because this is really the information is the opposite of what most recommendations are. Everyone tells you, oh, don't eat too much salt, you'll blow up and you'll get too puffy or your blood pressure will go high. It actually turns out that this is the opposite. Salt needs actually go up because your fluid needs go up during pregnancy. And if you think about your bodily fluids, they always come with salt. Like if you go into the hospital dehydrated and get an IV, they don't give you pure water. They give you at the very least salt water (laughs) because your heart requires it to beat and your muscles require it and your nerves require it. It's required for many different things in your system. So sodium needs also go up during pregnancy. And they've actually found that a low salt intake can be risky for the growth and development of the placenta and also the baby. It's actually, I was shocked when I started really diving into the research, how strong the evidence is in terms of the risks of low salt intake and the requirements for more. So, you know, my book is very heavily referenced, so you can see the citations to the research and read the original studies if you want. But essentially, the gist is beneficial to eat salt to your body's cravings, to your body's signals. And a lot of women naturally crave 
saltier foods during pregnancy. And I think there's a good nutritional reason behind it. So if you're like really craving pickles and olives and salami and cheese, that's probably why (laughs) you probably need more salt. So go ahead and do it. They've also found that reducing salt doesn't necessarily help with high blood pressure. And in some cases, high blood pressure and preeclampsia are actually better managed on a higher salt diet which is very surprising for most people. And it was even honestly surprising for me. I mean, I wasn't fearful of salt by any means, but I didn't realize how crucial it is actually to get enough during pregnancy. So that's definitely something to have on your radar. Protein needs are higher than the current recommendations. You know, some pregnancy research is less advanced than we would think. Like as of 2015, we had the first ever study to directly measure protein needs in pregnant women. Wow. <laughs> that was three years ago. So that found that the current requirement or current recommendations for protein are not high enough. In early pregnancy, they need to be 39% higher than current recommendations. And in late pregnancy, I think the number was 73%. Let me make sure that's accurate because they hate misquoting data when I'm talking. (laughs) Yeah, 73% higher in later pregnancy. So, you know, the current recommendations for women, like an average size woman would need like 60 grams-ish of protein a day in pregnancy. And what this research shows us is that in early pregnancy needs are for that woman, likely about 80 grams or more. And in late pregnancy, a minimum of 100 grams. And again, this ends up falling right in line with the micronutrient requirements of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to meet your zinc and iron and B12 and B6 needs and omega-3 needs, you're probably going to be needing to have that amount of protein a day. And then you start looking at studies on what do pregnant women naturally tend to eat. They actually tend to eat around 100 grams or more of protein a day. So some of this is like reassurance that what your body is telling you to do is the right thing to do. So practicing mindful eating, I think is very, very important. A lot of this research also points to, you know, some of the wisdom from what traditional cultures, the foods that they emphasize during pregnancy, it seems that there's a lot of modern data to back up those practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talk about intuitive eating a lot around here on Keto for Women show, because it's something I think that really all women should be doing with their food and learning how to listen to their bodies. And I really think that pregnancy is a great time to do that for a woman because you really have almost like a heightened sense of what your body is telling you at that moment. Absolutely. Yeah, there's this weird uptick in your intuition and and body awareness. It's true. I'm, I'm huge on mindful eating too. And and again, it's, it's some people think it's kind of like woo-woo, you know, they just want to go by numbers, they need data and Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm super data-driven as well, but there is actually research on it and they show that women who practice mindful eating actually tend to eat less junk food and more nutritious real food by default. Like you start listening to your body's signals and say you indulge in something that's not made from, you know, real food ingredients, I don't know, donut or whatever. And you're like, wow, I feel awful. Then the next time you go to eat something, you're like, hmm, I want to feel good. I'm not going to have the donut. I'm going to have this. Or even portion size, you know, like, wow, I ate so much that I'm like, can't even get up from the table. I'm so stuffed. I don't feel well. My heart burns worse. Da, 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 da. I don't want to feel that way the next time. And when you sit down to eat, you can give yourself permission to eat until you feel satisfied, but not overstuffed. And hey, if you're hungry in 30 minutes or an hour or two hours or three hours, whenever it is, 
you have permission to eat again. It's this very freeing way Mm -hmm. of eating. And I think it naturally complements eating lower carb real food the best because when you're not eating processed foods, you're not consuming all those natural flavors and like the addictive stuff, chemical things. Yeah. The stuff that like trick your brain to keep eating the stuff that food companies love to put in our food. Yes. Yes. We are so on the same page. Okay. Last question slash topic. What are your thoughts or I guess, does anything need to change that you just mentioned once you start breastfeeding? Oh, yes. Excellent question. (laughs) So yes, like with a caveat, I actually have a section in the book all about the fourth trimester and breastfeeding and whatnot. And I include some information on carbohydrates specifically. So postpartum is crazy. You are recovering from birth, which for most people is like the equivalent of running a marathon or two. So you need nutrient repletion fast (laughs) and you are starving. Also, you have all these hormonal adjustments. You have healing from birth, which maybe you tore or were cut surgically, depending on the circumstances of your birth. There are tissues that need to heal. Plus, you're now producing milk for this baby And that requires a lot of energy. So as a whole, like your energy needs are way higher and you're very hungry. You need to eat. (laughs) First and foremost, you need to eat. You need to drink lots of water. You need to recover. You need to rest. When it comes to foods, like the same nutrient-dense foods that are important during pregnancy are important while you're recovering and breastfeeding as well. That doesn't change. The carbohydrate issue may change for some women because when your energy needs go up, a proportion of those energy needs may also be supplied by carbohydrates, right? So proportionally, even if you thrive on a low-carb diet, you may be eating more carbs while you're breastfeeding, which is totally fine because it's highly energy intensive. Mm -hmm. Some women are also notice that their milk supply is not as good if they go super strict low-carb. And I think we don't know why this happens because there is some research on lower-ish carb during breastfeeding. The lower carb diet had 137 grams a day, so definitely not keto. And the high carb, well, they were probably still in ketosis if they were breastfeeding. <laughs> However, the high carb planted 265 grams a day. So low carb in relation to that one and the milk output was not different. However, I hear from a lot of women that they go to low carb and their milk supply suffers. And there's a couple reasons that this could happen, like lower carb diets naturally reduce your hunger levels, so you may be under eating. Or if you're choosing lower carb because you want to lose weight, you may be intentionally under eating, which is not good. Lower carb diets also result in water loss, so you need more fluids to produce breast milk. And then if you're also eating super low carb, you need even more fluids, so maybe you're not able to keep up with that. Also, lower carb tends to deplete electrolytes. You lose more salt and electrolytes in your urine, and those are also excreted in your breast milk. So again, it's possible those are also not being replenished. So my caution for women with going low-carb post-birth is to do so very gradually. I personally think that you should at least be consuming the amount of carbohydrates that you were consuming during pregnancy and possibly more if you notice there are supply issues. Again, your energy needs are higher. Mm -hmm. You are crazy, crazy hungry and sleep deprived. And you have a baby who's like eating around the clock. You need to eat. (laughs) (laughs) If it's carbs or not carbs, like I don't care. You need to eat. 
if your goal is to breastfeed long-term, you want to do everything you can to establish and maintain your supply long-term as well. So again, if that for you means eating more carbohydrates, do it. And then if you feel your best eating low carb, like I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I'm past the two year mark with my son and still nursing and I eat pretty low carb, at least now. And I like I'm still producing milk, not much because I'm two years out, but I didn't personally intentionally try to lower carbs in my diet. I mean, I was eating the way I usually do. So it certainly wasn't high carb, but I was definitely not eating ketogenic levels of carbohydrate, traditionally ketogenic levels, like 20, 30 grams or less a day. It was probably closer to 100 to 150, maybe even more than that on some days in the early months, because you are still establishing your milk supply. Mm -hmm. Again, your energy needs are higher. And sometimes you don't even have the time or luxury to eat or prepare food. So sometimes it is a matter of just getting the calories in. So if you're going to go low carb, wait until your milk supply is established. And I would say that's usually, you know, two, three, sometimes four months before you consider going there. If you do go there, don't intentionally restrict your calories. You might actually need to intentionally eat more because low carb tends to lower your appetite. And a lot of the milk supply stuff is just related to energy intake, period. So you need to eat more energy and then if there, you know, enough energy and probably need to try to eat more when you're going low carb. And then if you do go that route, don't go from eating like, I think what happens a lot of times is women sort of don't make their food choices from a nutritional standpoint early postpartum and like go off the rails and then go, oh my gosh, I need to get back to keto because I felt great when I was keto, right? And you have like a four to six week old, they're like going through a growth spurt. You go from like 200 grams of carbs a day to 20 and your milk supply plummets. Right. This is like, that does happen a lot <laughs> for all the reasons that I just mentioned. Don't be that person. If you're going to go low carb, make it from a choice of eating nutrient dense foods and like providing for yourself and your recovery and do it gradually. If you're eating 200 grams of carbs a day, cut it by like 20 a day or 15 a day, gradually get to that point. You don't want to put your body in shock and also not eat enough. Cause what I see is a lot of women super under eating when they go keto. Oh yes. Yeah. So bad. again, it's like, I don't think keto is necessarily bad during breastfeeding. I think a lot of women have a not great experience with it because it's maybe not implemented correctly or gradually, mm -hmm. or there's always the possibility that you are that person who needs more carbs in the early breastfeeding phase and own it, do the mindful eating thing and own it. <laughs> and like your body will regulate over a period of time to focus on weight loss in the first couple months postpartum is crazy. It's, yeah, definitely don't do that. You need a full year to heal at least. So be super gentle with yourself, super gentle with your body, make every decision about food for, as an act of self-care and not punishment because you need to lose the baby weight right away. I'll step off my soapbox. <laughs> no, it's so true. And we, again, we have a very similar soapbox. I think that's all such amazing points. And as with everything, it's individual. So don't do what your neighbor does if it doesn't feel right for you. If you have a person that in your life that also had a baby and they're trying to do keto and they feel really great, but you don't, then don't do it. It's that easy. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. This was so fascinating. I actually, as someone who doesn't have kids and is not something that's I'm looking to do in my near future, I'm still very fascinated by the whole topic. So thank you so much yeah. for sharing all that. That was really great. So you have these two books. Tell us a little bit more about that, where we can get them, where we can learn more about what you do, that 
sort of stuff? Sure. So my first book is Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And obvious who that book is for. (laughs) So if there's any concerns about blood sugar issues in pregnancy, that one will be for you. It's very much geared towards women, typically in the third trimester when they're diagnosed. So the book is very focused on blood sugar. You can find more about that at realfoodforgd.com. I have a free training there on gestational diabetes and like the issues with the conventional diet and why real food is the better alternative. If you just want more information on that without buying the book, go over to realfoodforgd.com. Real Food for Pregnancy is the new book, and that is available at realfoodforpregnancy.com. For people who just want to dip their feet in, I do give away the first chapter for at realfoodforpregnancy.com, and that includes something that a lot of people are really enjoying which is a nutrient comparison. I did like a micronutrient analysis on a real food meal plan, one of mine, versus the conventional one that's pushed in the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics materials. And you can see the data doesn't lie. You can see which one gives you more micronutrients. Just get a feel for why it makes so much sense on so many levels to eat real food during your pregnancy. I mean, you can reduce your chances of many complications or manage them easier. And you can also optimize your baby's development. So I can't think of any any better reason than that to embrace it. And then finally, my main blog is PilatesNutritionist.com. So if people are interested in my most recent blog post, you can go over there. Ah, thank you so much, Lily. This was awesome. I really appreciate you sharing all your stuff. You bet. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. <laughs> 